0: All right, Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to just start at verse 22 because that's when this story uh, begins. Um, If you have a Bible like mine, it's found in 840. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. One of my favorite stories here in, in Luke's gospel One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. I'm just going to skip verses 23 to 25 and then go down to 26. I know that just raised your curiosity, which I like. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is literally how this reads, opposite Galilee. Many times, this unclean spirit seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot, kept under guard, he had broken his chains, and he had been driven by the demons into the solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because we are many. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and, and were drowned. Those tending the pigs saw what had happened. They ran off, reported this to the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus... They found this man, whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So Jesus got in the boat and left. This is God's word. You can be seated. I had all these PowerPoints this morning that I was going to show you, and uh, we had technical difficulties, so I'm going to have to try to explain what I was going to show you. Um, This whole thing starts in in verse 22, where Jesus says to his disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake. Literally, it just reads, let us go to the other side. And I wanted to show you how the lake worked in terms of who, who lived around this lake, because we might just assume that... It was all the same, but really there are actually three different political districts around the Sea of Galilee um, with different rulers. All of them, of course, reported to Rome, but they were different. They were especially different culturally. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I showed you where Jesus did a large majority of his ministry. It was on that northern part of the Sea of Galilee uh, in a really three-by-six-mile radius, Uh, where Jews lived, not just Jews, but Jews who had an intense devotion to God, to Torah, to knowing it, to living it, to teaching it, to praying it, and if they had the privilege to die it. It it, it was those kind of people that lived in what we called this triangle, Um, just because Chorazin, Bethsaida, uh, Capernaum kind of formed this triangle on the northern side of the lake. On the other side of the lake, you have a region called Decapolis. Deca means ten. Polis means city. These ten cities, which dominated this region, were planted. I mean, that's the only word I can use. They were planted by Alexander the Great. When he came to this part of the world, he didn't just conquer it... But he he converted it. I mean, his whole objective was to Hellenize the world, to Westernize it, to Greekize it. In fact, I think Paul is the world's greatest missionary prior to the Apostle Paul because he did exactly what he set out to do. He didn't just conquer the world, but he uh, converted it to Hellenism. He made the world Greek, and the way that he did it after he would conquer a region is he would plant cities, and he would leave a cohort of soldiers behind with a huge wad of cash, and he would say, all right, I want you to build a mini Athens here or a mini Sparta and make sure there's McDonald's and a Starbucks and a movie theater and an arena. Really? I mean, they didn't have that stuff back then, but a lot like it. And see, Alexander the Great, when he, he just saw the Western culture as supreme, and he saw the city as his means to... Propagate Western culture, to propagate this Western worldview. And he did it through temples, through theaters, arenas, spas, all these institutions of the Greek way of life. In fact, just take the gymnasium. If you know anything about the Greek gymnasium, this is where the Greeks trained their body and their mind. It's where people were indoctrinated into a Greek way of thinking. It was essentially humanism. Humanism is this idea that man is the measure of all things. It's a worldview that says that my human mind is the source of all truth. And if my mind can't understand it, then it can't be true. It's the idea that the human body is the standard of all beauty. So it elevates the human body. And the reason it's called a gymnasium, because gymnos is the word for naked. This is the place where you're naked. Why would you put clothes on? You you show the glory of the human body. Gymnast is, is an athlete who participates in the nude. Now, if you know anything about the Middle East, it's modest. It's always been modest. It was modest well before Islam took a hold of it then all of a sudden imagine all these Greco-Roman cities popping up all over the place with their theaters and their arenas and their gymnasiums, things that this part of the world had never seen or witnessed before. And then you decide one night, hey, family, let's go to the arena. Let's watch and see what takes place there. You see all these athletes coming out and, and competing in the nude. I'm telling you, this was a shock. It was a shock to their system. And this is just one of thousands of differences that existed between these cultures. And these cultures are right there in the Lake of Galilee. I mean, to the simple eye, these these regions couldn't be more different. I mean, it's the difference between uh, the Jewish part, which things made of mud and and, and stone brick. To the other side, where it's Greco-Roman, things of white marble and theaters and beautiful colonnaded streets and running water, villas. And you have this town, Susita, which is one of the primary cities of the Decapolis, which is just perched on this high hill on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it would have been a a city that would have been in everybody's view when Jesus is teaching his Sermon on the Mount. And I can just... I can see Jesus almost pointing at that city and then pointing at his disciples and saying, You, you are the city on a hill. You, that's the glory of man. You are the glory of God. So, to any faithful Jew, that land was forbidden. In fact, a religious Jew of that time wasn't even allowed to utter the word Decapolis. So they simply said, the other side. Or a faraway country, like Jesus says in the parable of the prodigal. Or, as it says in our text, Gerashim. Gerashim is the Hebrew word for Expelled. This is the land of the expelled ones. This is the land of the unclean, of the unkosher. It's the land of of evil and demonic. That's how the Jewish people saw this. And certainly, no Jewish kid from the triangle would ever think about going to the other side. Hey guys, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. <laughs> I could just hear these disciples. I don't know how much they would say in front of Jesus, but I can see them whispering uh, behind Jesus' back, like, what's this guy thinking? Is he crazy? And They get in a boat, and what happens? Everything they think is, 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 is being confirmed. A storm comes. Boat swamped. They're fighting a losing battle, afraid for their lives. I thought about this this week. Did Jesus knowingly lead them into that storm? What's Jesus doing with these guys? He's discipling them. He's preparing them. How are they going to know who he is? Is it just by hearing a sermon or sitting in some systematic uh, theology class. Jesus is blank. That's not how Jesus teaches. Hey guys, let's get in the boat. Let's go into a storm. Remember, in their mind, the, the sea, according to their worldview, is the abyss. It's, it's the home of the demonic. And here they are in the dark of night and the abyss does, of course, in their minds what the abyss does. It throws all its force at these guys and here they get to see things in Jesus that they never would have seen if they just heard sermons. They see this sleeping giant awake, rise up, look at that storm and say, Shalom. In a moment, a moment. A raging storm. It's calm. Calm. You know what our Bibles tell us? Not only did the disciples say, who is this? But this will happen another time. And the next time it happens, it will say, and the disciples fell down and worshipped Jesus. And they said, truly, this is The Son of God. It's the first time the Gospels acknowledge that these disciples worshiped Jesus as Lord. Jesus is discipling these guys. He's leading these guys into storms to show them who he is, just like he's going to lead them to the Decapolis to show them who he is. And right now, for you, he might be leading you into a storm. Yep, I said that. He leads us into storms. And some of you right now are in small storms. Some of you right now, if the truth be known, are, are, are in a storm that's raging so fierce, it's you're afraid. Do you know that we're never going to really get to know him apart from the storm? This, uh, this Monday... Afternoon, I'm going to be flying out to Colorado to uh, visit one of my former students, and it's just interesting to hear these coaches up here talking about uh, students and players. And um, You know, when you invest this way, you you watch your students grow up, and you watch them get married, and you watch them have kids, and then you really start to get old. And like with this one, uh, she has cancer, and she's not going to make it. She literally... Has days to live. 35 years old. Two kids, married, husband, a pastor. But guess what? She is radiating Christ, and people's lives are being changed because of her faith. It's the storm, it's the storm, it's the storm. That causes us to say, Who is this? Who is this? All right, off that rabbit trail. Um, look at verses 26 and 27. So they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, the land of the expelled ones. Our NIV says, which is across the lake from Galilee. It literally reads, which is, it's, it's opposite. It's not just geographically opposite, but it's, it, it's opposite in every way. They reach the shore... And what? This freak of a man, for lack of a better way of saying it, comes running at them from the tombs, and these disciples are scared. Everything they thought about the Decapolis is confirmed. It's unkosher. It's unclean. First you have a cemetery, the epitome to to the Jew of what's unclean. Then from this cemetery comes a demonized man, someone who's just full of unclean, and he's coming from a land of the unclean. Now here's where I have to say something about the demonic. Because you and I today, I think we all understand physical storms. We, we, we understand that. We're, 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 our minds are comfortable with, with, with trying to explain a, a physical storm. But this kind of storm, I don't know how many of us have a category for it. Part of it's because we've, we've been raised in a pretty sophisticated society that's been taught not to believe in demons. Our our scientific, therapeutic worldview that we've been taught tells us it's it's kind of an ancient and irrational thing to believe in the demonic. Even a lot of Christians today think that this is just the Bible's way of explaining things like epilepsy or mental illness. But here's what I find interesting. Interesting. If you deny demons today, because of this scientific, therapeutic worldview, you are also embracing one of the most simplistic, and let me add, dehumanizing ways of looking at people and people and their problems. Because what I'm seeing more and more is that what our world tells us is that all problems now are physiological, and if you have a problem, it's resolved either through meds or pill-taking. So if you have a problem with that, you take that pill. And if you have a problem with this, you take this pill. You talk about simplistic. I remember a few years ago when Gabe, my son, came home when he was in high school. He said, Dad, I don't know of a single girl in my class right now who's not taking meds. Now listen, I am not against pills. I know that there is a time and place and situations where pills are the the most appropriate thing to take. But if we're going to reduce all problems today to pill taking, in my opinion, this is dehumanizing. God's word recognizes the complexity of human beings. In fact, just turn to Matthew 4. Because we need to see this. Matthew 4, 24, found on page 785. It says, news about Jesus spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill, who were sick with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain. People with physical problems, they brought him to Jesus. They brought the demon Possessed. They brought those having seizures. In fact, that word there is the word for lunacy. And they brought those who were paralyzed. In other words, some of these people had physical problems. Some of these people had spiritual problems. Some of these people had, had rational problems. And, and the Bible wants us to see that we are... All of these things as a human being and that there is a complexity to our issues, for lack of a better word. So when I hear a Christian who says that whenever there's a problem, it must be a demon. I feel like they're just as simplistic and dehumanizing as the shrink who's prescribing pills to everybody. And we can't truly care for people if we don't recognize the complexity of people and their problems. And that sometimes our issues are physiological. Sometimes they're moral and spiritual. Sometimes um, it's just a complexity of nurture and nature. And the better we can understand this and seek to understand it, the better we will care for people. Now in saying all that, the Bible is very clear that there is a Satan. And there's a whole spiritual world that hates Jesus. In fact, if you don't think Satan had anything to do with that physical storm that the disciples just encountered, I think you're a bit naive. But see, what Satan and this dark world of spiritual forces understands is it understands that it can't touch Jesus. Of course it can't touch him. So it goes after those who are made in God's image because Satan and his forces abhor and utterly detest the image that we as human beings bear. And he is going to do everything to destroy it. That's why we have coaches up here describing what they're describing. What's the primary characteristic of demon possession or demonization? We'll look at verse 29. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demons into solitary places what you see in this man are are really two characteristics. Number one, he has enormous power. And yet he's a slave. Enormous power, yet a slave. And see, there are various degrees of this. You you, you don't have to be one who's frothing at the mouth and and living naked. The, The biblical idea is that if you and I make any, our Lord it will eventually master us so that if I lust after power I'm going to be controlled by power and if I lust after money I'm going to be controlled by money and if I lust after my girlfriend my (laughs) that doesn't apply to me obviously (laughs) if you lust after your girlfriend you will be controlled by your girlfriend let's just be clear on that you got to love it. Wasn't it great seeing the kids up here today too? (laughs) Listen, if we sell out to anything, eventually we're going to become its slave. I've learned this lesson the hard way. We are going to be controlled by the Lord of our lives, period. And the more power or pleasure that I get by serving something other than Jesus, the more enslaved I'm going to become to that thing or person. That's why the New Testament writers over and over again, they're quick to warn us about allowing the enemy to get a foothold in our lives, whether it be through pride or selfishness or bitterness or anger, unforgiving spirit, slander, deceit, unexposed sin, because these footholds can so quickly turn into strongholds. Now, when you look at this man, does your heart break for him? Mine does, and I'll tell you why. It's not because I'm such a good person, it's because deep in my heart I know I could so easily be this man apart from Jesus. And here he is he's alienated from community, he's cut off, he's alone, he's rejected. Brutally tormented. Literally being destroyed by evil. And let's not forget that this is someone's son. Maybe someone's brother, someone's sister. He is a person who is made in God's image. We can never forget that. Don't you love it that Jesus says, Hey guys, let's go to the other side. I mean, this is the whole message of the Bible. It's, it's Jesus leaving the side of his father, all the comforts of that, and coming to earth. He comes to the other side. He comes to a people who are expelled, who are expelled from Eden, who are expelled from the presence of God. He comes to confront the storm, to invade Satan's territory, to take on the powers of hell, to set the captives free. He does. You know what I love about this story? Jesus makes this whole trip for this one man. Just like he comes for you. look who he takes takes his disciples because this is what we're signing up for when we follow jesus our life is now going to be about going to the other side because god so loves the world he loves the other side now here's something that i i want you to see in the text i checked it with every other gospel account and here's what i can conclude The disciples never get out of the boat. (laughs) They don't. You can go check. There's not even a hint of these guys getting out of the boat. In other words, they aren't ready yet. But don't beat these guys up because this is what discipleship is. Discipleship means that we are in process. But whether we're ready or not to get out of the boat and go to the other side, we do need to know that there is a Decapolis out there, that there are people right now who are sick and desperate for Jesus Christ. And the question I want to ask myself and the question I want to ask our church, even when we have these two teachers up here this morning, is do we have that kind of passion, that kind of chutzpah to, to, to get out of the boat, to get to the other side, to touch people who desperately need Jesus? Because I believe this is one of the biggest questions that's facing the church today. Today. not do we have all these feel good times with God but will we as a church follow Jesus to the other side and we'll get out of the boat. Look at Jesus. Look at verses 30 to 33. This whole interaction is pretty personal. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion he replied because we are many. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. And a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the, on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And Jesus gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. First of all, do you know what a legion is? At this time in in Roman history, a legion is anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. In fact, I find this kind of interesting. Rome's fifth legion is is, is the legion that's stationed to guard the Decapolis. And if you want to know its its insignia or its symbol was, it was that of a boar's head. (laughs) And I think there's a lesson here, and that is, you know, Rome promised a lot. It promised wealth. It promised power. It promised prosperity and comfort. But there's almost something demonic about those things. What happens to a legion of demons when it's in the presence of Jesus? It's left with one course of action at his feet, at his feet, begging, begging, please. The Legion knows who he's dealing with in Jesus. The demons always know. That's why they're like saying, son of the most high God. Now what Jesus does here is unprecedented because in both the ancient and modern world, all exorcisms are always done by that person or that pastor or that priest or that religious person. They always are calling on a higher power. But Jesus, just like he can look at a storm and say, shalom, and it's calm, he can just look at this man possessed with thousands of demons and say, get out. Get out. Now, like I taught you with the parables, we... The, the, the same thing holds true with the miracles of Jesus. The miracle isn't just Jesus pulling out another magic trick from, from his bag of tricks. He's painting a picture through, through, the, through the miracle itself of who he is. So when he stills the storm, or better yet, when he walks on it, he's telling everybody, this is my place in the universe. He's put all things, even the to home, even the demonic... Under my feet. And when he speaks into that storm, it's like Genesis 1, 1, and 2 all over again, where he's speaking into the tohu Bohu and bringing shalom to chaos. And now in our story today, I mean, you look at these pigs and you say, oh, these poor pigs. And I, we need to be poor pigs a little bit. But we also need to see the picture that Jesus is painting. What is the pig in the Jewish worldview? Unclean. What's a, what's a demon in their worldview? It's not an evil spirit. it's an unclean spirit. It's still evil, but they call it an unclean spirit. So by taking these unclean uh, spirits and putting them into the unclean animal and then throwing them where, that's the Creator putting everything in its proper. Look at verse 35. The townspeople went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they found a man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. When they saw this, they were afraid. Much like the disciples, when they saw him still the storm. Who is this? I don't know if you remember in Exodus when um, we talked about the plagues and we talked about how Pharaoh's magicians tried to keep up with, with, with God and trying to reduplicate the plague. And they could actually uh, keep up with, with the first couple, but they, they get to about the third or fourth plague and they have to go back to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, we can't do this. This is the finger. Of And see, Jesus is going to say a few chapters later in Luke, in Luke 11, verse 20, he's going to say, But if I drive out f- demons by what? The finger of God, then you will know the kingdom of heaven has come on you. I want you to see what happens when the kingdom of heaven descends upon a demoniac, it utterly transforms this man's life because Jesus' power is real. Jesus doesn't just put band-aids on people. He heals people from the inside out. No more voices in this man's head. No more nightmares at night. No more rage. No more anger. No more fear. He is free. There's a detail in this story that just, it, it, it cuts me to the heart in Mark's gospel. Mark wants us to introduce us to this man By describing how he cries out with loud groans all day long and how he's cutting himself. He's all bloody. Luke doesn't mention that stuff. Luke instead highlights the fact that this man is naked. And not only that, verse 27, he says he's been naked for a long time. Now, when the townspeople come out and see what happened, they see this man dressed. Who dressed him? Who? The same one who dressed me in my filth in his robes of righteousness. And if you are in Christ, the same one who has dressed you in his robes of righteousness. Jesus clothes this man, he dresses him, and those clothes represent something Jesus did deep within this man. All this man's filth has been replaced with a newness that is stunning. And I'll tell you what this story teaches us today. It doesn't matter how bad your past is. It doesn't matter how bad your present is. It doesn't even matter how demonized you might be today. If you and I are touched by the finger of God, we are made clean and normal in a right mind utterly transformed from the inside. Listen, if Jesus can change this man if he can change me he can change anyone now maybe you're a little bit s- skeptical today and you're just like really is this what Jesus does he like just goes around picking and choosing who he's you he go poof here let's okay and he touches boom it's all all changed and transformed i mean is this what what the deal is And if you're a bit skeptical, you should be skeptical because it is more than this. Because as we keep reading Luke's gospel, we're going to get to the end of Luke's gospel and we're going to see Jesus, in effect, exchanging places with this man. Because we're going to see Jesus who's going to be the one who's stripped naked, and we're going to see Jesus is the one who's crying out and, and all bloody. and we're going to see how Jesus is the one who is cut off and utterly forsaken. And we're going to see how Jesus is the one who's driven into the tombs, because this is how God destroys evil. He absorbs it into himself. He exchanges our sin for his righteousness. He exchanges our nakedness for his robes of righteousness. He exchanges our stains and uncleanness for his perfection. This is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Do you need that today? Do you need his touch? Some of you have spent your whole life around Jesus, but has he touched you? Do you believe today that jesus can, can can transform you from the inside out and if you 're asking how from our end it 's as simple as this: we need to see him for who he is, and he is the king he is the king of the universe he is the lord of lords and how do you respond to a king how do you respond to a lord well at the beginning of the story the man shows us and at the end of the story this man shows us both times this man is at jesus feet because to be at someone's feet in that day meant two things you only bowed to a king and you bowed to say to that king, you are Lord. You are my Lord. I am no longer going to be in control of my life. I'm surrendering it all to you. And In the Hebrew context, to be at someone's feet was the expression of discipleship. It was to say to someone, you are my shepherd, and I desperately want to follow you. i want to lay my life down and go where you go and walk where you walk. And learn to walk like you. We've set the table today. And I don't want it to be for everybody. I want it to be for those of us this morning who (laughs) want them. We want them. I want it to be for us who see them. And in seeing him want to bow at his feet. God, thank you for showing us your face. Showing us your heart in Jesus. And God, as we look at all the chaos around and all even the chaos within, there is a Lord a creator who is good who wants to recreate everything that's gone broken God I pray this morning that there would be repentance in this room I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you and for those of you of, of us God that just, just have this want today for more of you and want to repent of, of ourselves and and want to bow our lives at your feet, God. I pray, God, that you would continue to change. That you would calm the storm. That you would still us. And that your shalom would break into our chaos. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's just enter a time of silence.